We need to be clean. We need to be really clean to come into the Lord's presence. And the reality of sinful humanity, your reality, my reality, it's simply this, we are defiled by our sin, by our wrongdoing, by our rebellion against God and against His holy law. That's true for me, it's true for you, it's the Bible's verdict on humanity. Welcome to Encounter the Truth with Jonathan Griffiths. I'm Steve Hiller, glad you're with us as we begin a message today called When Religion Confronts Spiritual Reality. And Jonathan, you just set up a problem here for us. You know, the Bible says that we need to be clean to enter into God's presence, but we have the sin problem. So if uh, we've got the sin problem and we want to be in God's presence, how do we get there? How do we get clean? Well, this is one of the things that the Gospels really want to highlight for us. One of the wonders about the power of Jesus that the Gospel writers really want to bring home for us. And it is that Jesus has this power to make unclean people clean. And in the religious world of his day, there were various things that could defile you ceremonially. And we see Jesus making those who are defiled clean within the Gospels, and we're meant to take a deep spiritual lesson from that. All right. What about the person who says, I don't feel clean, though. I've come to Jesus, but man, I I still don't feel like I'm worthy to be in his presence. I feel dirty. Yeah. And of course, um, many can feel like that. That can be part of our spiritual experience. And when we do have that sense, one of the really reassuring things is to go back to the Gospels and read again the stories of Jesus making people objectively clean, cleansing them of disease and defilement and changing their lives by doing so. And it reminds us of his great power. And we're going to see that in the passage today. That's right. The passage is Matthew chapter 9. We're looking at verses 18 to 34 as we begin this message, When Religion Confronts Spiritual Reality. Here is Jonathan. If you've ever spent any time in the UK or if you've ever lived over there, you will have come across a curious substance called Marmite. I won't ask for a show of hands of those familiar with Marmite, but I expect many are. It is, I believe, a yeast extract, black in color, molasses-like in consistency, designed mainly to be spread on toast. You can get it here, but it really is a kind of British delicacy. It's bitter and salty, and on first taste, it is actually really quite unpleasant. But once the taste of this stuff is acquired, it can become an essential and much-loved part of a person's diet. Now, the interesting thing about Marmite is the reactions it inspires among those who know it. It is actually a very polarizing condiment. I've never met anyone who's familiar with Marmite who feels ambivalent or kind of neutral about it. Either you love it or you hate it. I gather that there is, in fact, a secret society called the Maramati for those devoted to this particular spread. Others insist that it is not fit for human consumption. In fact, I gather that the nation of Denmark actually tried banning its import on the grounds that it shouldn't be considered uh, for human consumption. If you're familiar with Marmite, you're going to have a strong opinion. You're going to have a very clear, instinctive reaction. Now, I only mention that polarizing effect and those strongly divergent reactions because as we progress through Matthew's gospel chapter by chapter, we find increasingly that this is a book and a story of polarized and bizarrely contrasting reactions. 
reactions to the person of Jesus Christ. It becomes increasingly clear as we move through the gospel that people find it very hard to stay neutral about Jesus. And in our passage this morning, we begin to see two starkly different patterns of response to Him. If you were with us last week, you'll remember that earlier in chapter 9, Jesus has just been engaging with some religious people, with Pharisees and then with disciples of John the Baptist. And last week, we found that both those groups of people were troubled by Jesus. They were not reacting well. They were troubled by the fact that He was not operating according to the norms of their religious expectations. He was associating with known sinners. He was failing to keep the religious traditions of their ancestors. Now, Jesus is more or less mid-sentence in responding to their concerns when the next series of events begins to unfold at verse 18. A A ruler, from the other Gospels, we know that this was a ruler of the synagogue. A ruler comes before Jesus with a very desperate message. My daughter has just died but come and put your hand on her, and she will live. You can only begin to imagine all that was going through that man's heart and his mind as he approached Jesus that day. It is an impossible and a hopeless situation beyond imagining. This is not simply a sick child that needs treatment. This is a dead child. And yet the man is convinced somehow a touch from Jesus will bring life. It's worth just noting here that this man's request is really a very, very big request, not simply in the miraculous outcome that he seeks, but in the method of healing that he requests. Come and put your hand on her, he asks. This is a very big request, and in some ways a very strange one, because Israelites were not meant to touch corpses. That was a big no-no. In fact, touching a corpse caused the most serious ceremonial defilement possible under the Old Testament law. Just listen to this extract from the regulations found in the Old Testament book of Numbers in chapter 19. It's serious stuff. Numbers 19 and verse 11. Whoever touches the dead body of anyone will be unclean for seven days. Whoever touches the dead body and fails to purify himself defiles the Lord's tabernacle. That person must be cut off from Israel. This ruler is asking quite a lot of Jesus. It's a big request. But verse 19, what does Jesus do? Jesus got up and went with him, and so did his disciples. Now, as Jesus is on his way to help this ruler to touch this dead body, he is immediately confronted with another situation of desperate need and of serious uncleanness. Verse 20, Just then, a woman who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years came up behind him and touched the edge of his cloak. She said to herself, if only I touch his cloak, I will be healed. Now, here is a woman whose life has been marred for 12 long years by this devastating condition, a hemorrhaging of some kind. Under Old Testament law, this condition was yet another cause of ceremonial uncleanness, Suffering from it, this woman would have been isolated from the community. Very likely, she would have been unable to marry. And of course, singleness for a woman at this time carried huge stigma, and it left her economically vulnerable. 
It would be no overstatement to say that at this time and in this place, this condition was ruining her life. She shouldn't have been walking through any kind of a crowd to get to Jesus. She would have made unclean anyone she just brushed past on her way to Him. And she certainly should not have done to Jesus what she did to Him. She should not have touched Him, even if it was only the edge of His cloak. By any reckoning, that was an outrageous thing to do. Now, remember again where we've just come from in the storyline of Matthew's gospel. Jesus has just been in a somewhat painful exchange with religious types who don't understand why he is not playing according to the religious rules, not sticking with the conventions of Judaism. They don't understand it. They don't get it. But now, in utter contrast, he's approached by these two different people, people in different situations of desperation who could not care less about the rules, but simply come to him and cry out to him for help and for healing. And what is his response? How does he react? We can imagine how this woman might have been feeling. She's broken every rule in the book. She's defied convention. She's presumably brought uncleanness upon Jesus himself. He might well be angry with her. And as he turns, verse 22, it is the moment of truth. Jesus turned and saw her. His eyes came upon her. And what look would be in those eyes? A flash of anger, maybe a look of contempt, a stare of scorn. No, none of those things. Take heart, daughter, your faith has healed you. And she was healed from that moment. From that very moment, through faith in Jesus, a ruined life was restored. A hopeless life was given a future. An outcast was welcomed as a daughter. It's a beautiful scene and a life-transforming encounter for this woman. But now Jesus continues on His way, on His previous journey to the ruler's house. He gets there, and when He arrives, the customary mourning is taking place. In that time, in that part of the world, mourning involved flute players and wailing, loud expressions of grief. Often professional mourners were hired to help make the noise and create the appropriate atmosphere. The girl is very much dead, and the traditional mourning is well underway. There's no question about what's happened here. But Jesus tells this mourning, wailing crowd, go away, verse 24. Go away. The girl is not dead but asleep. I saw in the news recently the bizarre report of someone who had been pronounced dead through an automobile accident in South Africa, then waking up a few hours later in the refrigerator in the morgue. (laughs) Evidently, this person was only mostly dead when they sent him to the morgue, and after some time of rest, he revived. Appearances can very occasionally be deceiving in this respect, but that's not the kind of situation that Jesus is referring to here in verse 24. He's not saying that there's been some kind of a mistake and the girl is actually still breathing. No, he's, he's not saying that. The mourners, they hadn't been deceived. The girl is indeed physically dead, but Jesus is simply saying that when faced with his power and his authority, death is not truly death. Well, the crowd laugh at him. They think he's deluded. They have no idea of the true identity of the one who stands before them. 
Eventually, they do go away, as they're told to do. And after they're all outside and the noise has finally died down, Jesus does the very thing that the ruler had asked. He takes this little girl by the hand, in so doing, inviting all the ceremonial uncleanness of death upon himself. And as he takes her lifeless little hand in his hand, lo and behold, her, her eyes flicker. Her pulse, it, it, it returns her breathing restarts. She wakes and she rises from the grave itself. Death is defeated. Life is restored. Uncleanness is removed. The ruler's faith is thoroughly vindicated. Now, as we think about these two miracles that we've just looked at and consider the way in which they are woven together in the story, how Jesus pauses to heal this woman on his way to raise the girl, when we think about these two intermingled stories, the common factor here is what? The common factor is uncleanness. In light of the Jewish law, in light of the Old Testament, I think that is clearly the big uniting issue here. Jesus confronts and encounters two cases of very serious ritual uncleanness. And in both cases, very explicitly, very intentionally, very clearly, a touch of healing is involved. There is this physical contact in both cases, which immediately raises the matter of defilement. And so what we see here in these two incidents is simply this. Jesus is the Savior who cleanses. He is the Savior who brings cleansing to the defiled. You're listening to Encounter the Truth with Jonathan Griffiths and a message called When Religion Confronts Spiritual Reality. It's part of a larger series called Kingdoms Colliding. And we're going to get back to this message in just a few moments. I want to let you know this is a listener-supported broadcast, and we depend on your generosity to keep Jonathan's teaching on this station. But as you give a gift, we want to say thank you by sending you a book called Checkbook of the Bank of Faith. It's a great devotional book written by the Victorian preacher C.H. Spurgeon. And again, it's our thank you gift as you give a gift of support to Encounter the Truth this month. You can find out more about this or give your gift online by coming to EncounterTheTruth.org. That's EncounterTheTruth.org. All right, let's get back to the message. Once again, here is Jonathan. I don't know if you or someone you live with has an obsession with cleanliness floors need to be mopped at least once a day, bathrooms disinfected every time they're used, anything touched or breathed on by a small child needs wiping down immediately. Maybe you're like that yourself. Maybe you're married to someone like that. Maybe you wish you were married to someone more like that. <laughs> it's common enough and a fixation with hygiene can, of course, become quite obsessive. There are names for that kind of thing. I saw online that the Times of India ran a feature a little while ago on the 10 common surfaces in our lives that are dirtier than a toilet seat. Doorknobs are number one. No surprise there. Worth just getting your sleeve kind of hitched up to turn those things. Next comes the smartphone. Those things are really filthy. Ten times more bacteria than a toilet seat. Then the keyboard, and on it goes, handbag, steering wheel, bathroom, faucet. Our environment is kind of disgusting when we pause to think about it too much. Bacteria everywhere, lurking in every corner, defiling every surface. When you read the Old Testament laws... 
concerning purity and defilement. And there are plenty of laws on that theme in the Scriptures. You could be forgiven for thinking that God has some kind of cleaning obsession, some kind of obsessive compulsive thing going on, some phobia of filth. I mean, the legislation in the Old Testament Scriptures, it is quite remarkable when you stop to read it. All kinds of things make you unclean under the Old Testament regulations. Skin diseases, discharges, touching something dead, eating unclean foods. It was not only possible to become unclean by direct contact with those things, it was also possible to become unclean by secondary contact, by, by contact with someone who had contacted those things. And for someone who had been thus defiled, to return to a state of purity involved ritual. Sometimes it involved sacrifice, and it certainly involved time, up to 80 days in the worst cases. And until you were clean under those provisions, for as long as you remained in a state of defilement, you could not come anywhere near the Lord's temple or His tabernacle. You certainly couldn't come into His house. Now, it could all look like some kind of an odd obsession, but the reality is that those purity laws were there to teach the people of God a lesson and to make a very significant point. And here's the point. God is pure, and it is very hard for a sinful and defiled people in a sin-stained world to come into His presence of holiness and of purity. The purity laws were a constant reminder to the people of God that they were unclean, that they could easily become defiled, and that only a pure people could come into the presence of God. And so those purity laws, they made it clear to the people that their great need, the great need not only of them but of any people, is not to find a way to keep your hands clean and to maintain a clean body or a clean home. The great need is to have a clean heart, to have the guilt and the stain of sin removed. In Psalm 24, the psalmist asked the question, who may ascend the hill of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? And the answer comes, it's familiar to many, he who has clean hands and a pure heart. We need to be clean. We need to be really clean to come into the Lord's presence. And the reality of sinful humanity, your reality, my reality, it's simply this, we are defiled by our sin, by our wrongdoing, by our rebellion against God and against His holy law. That's true for me. It's true for you. It's the Bible's verdict on humanity. As I was preparing this message, I glanced at the news and saw a headline about two people in England who have been fatally poisoned by what appears to be a Russian nerve agent. Maybe you read about that. It's an interesting story. Anyway, the headline announced, Poisoned Pair Handled Contaminated Item. Mere contact with this very potent stuff proved lethal. And as I just saw that headline, I thought to myself, it's actually something of a picture for us of the lethal damage of sin, the fatal result of sin's contamination in our lives. It's poison. It's life-destroying. 
when that broken and that desperate woman touched Jesus' garment, when Jesus put his hand on that corpse, if we know anything about biblical law, we know this. Jesus should be receiving a transfer of defilement. That's what we would expect. That's what the law stipulates. And in a sense, that's the greatest shock of the scene, that Jesus is willing to do that. Now, the thought of that, it isn't explored more in the text right now. Matthew doesn't really do anything with it. The question is just left there hanging for us. The reality, the tension, the question, it's just left. But the point isn't ultimately abandoned or forgotten. I think it's meant to linger. I think we're meant to hold on to it and chew over it. In our journey through Matthew's gospel, we keep on finding that the miracles of Jesus point us forward again and again to His greatest work of all, His greatest miracle of all, His sacrifice of Himself on the cross for our sin. We've seen that again and again in the miracles over recent weeks. And there is something profound and wonderful and very beautiful about the way in which these two miracles point us to that greatest miracle of all. You see, what we observe here is Jesus taking upon Himself the defilement and the burden of human sin, and in exchange giving healing and wholeness and life. There is a great exchange here. It's what's happening here in Matthew 9, and of course that's exactly what was taking place at a far deeper level at the cross. It's just what Jesus did at Calvary. He willingly and knowingly took upon Himself all my defilement and all your defilement, every evil thought, every unkind word, every devious, dishonest, and dishonorable deed, all moral filth, all contamination. We read just a moment ago from the Old Testament law that those who touched corpses and weren't cleansed would be cut off from Israel, excluded from the presence of God. And what happened on the cross? What was going on there? Jesus was cut off. He was excluded. And what did He cry out as He died? My God, my God, why have You forsaken me? At the cross, the Lord Jesus Christ willingly accepted my defilement and your defilement. He died as a cleansing sacrifice. He died that you and I might be purified that we might move from exclusion and isolation, just think of that woman, move from being outcasts from the family of God and from the presence of God, and instead be welcomed as family, as daughters, as sons. It's very clear from Scripture that those who are spiritually, uh, ceremonially defiled by sin are actually spiritually dead. You were dead in your transgressions and sins, says Paul in Ephesians chapter 2. But Jesus, what did He do? He reached down into the grave, into the spiritual grave, and He took us by the hand and lifted us up. And lifting us up, He gave us life. Jonathan Griffiths with the conclusion of today's broadcast, a message entitled, When Religion Confronts Spiritual Reality. It's part of a larger series, Kingdoms Colliding, and we've been taking a look today at Matthew chapter 9, verses 18 to 34. We're going to continue this message next time as we continue our progress through the Gospel of Matthew, finding this book increasingly becoming a story 
of a polarized and bizarrely contrasting reaction to Jesus. Hope that you'll stay with us. If you ever miss a broadcast, you can always listen to each and every program online. Just come to our website and listen there. It's at EncounterTheTruth.org. Again, EncounterTheTruth.org. Well, Encounter the Truth is a listener-supported ministry. We depend on your generosity to keep this program on this station, but as you give a gift of any amount, we want to say thank you by sending you a book called Checkbook of the Bank of Faith. It's written by C.H. Spurgeon. And Jonathan, what did you love about this book? Well, we're so delighted to be able to make this resource available this month. Charles Spurgeon is one of the most famous preachers, actually, in the church's history, I think. He was a a wonderful pastor and Bible teacher in Victorian London, and he led a very significant ministry there. And Spurgeon had a genius for taking simple truths through God's Word and applying them to the hearts of believers. And these daily readings, I believe, will nourish your heart and soul, whether you're new to reading the Bible or whether that is a long-established pattern for you. I think you'll find this of great benefit and encouragement. The book is called Checkbook of the Bank of Faith. We'd love to send you a copy as you give a gift of any amount. All you have to do is come to the website, EncounterTheTruth.org, or you can give us a call at 833-99-TRUTH. That's 833-998-7884. Or again, the website, EncounterTheTruth.org. Well, thanks for listening today, and I hope you'll join us next time.